Chapter Fifteen, Part Three of the Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. She took off her clothes and made him take off all his, and they ran over the smooth, moonless turf a long way, more than a mile from where they had left their clothing, running in the dark, soft wind, utterly naked, as naked as the downs themselves. Her hair was loose and blue about her shoulders. She ran swiftly, wearing sandals when she set off on the long run to the dew-pond. In the round dew-pond the stars were untroubled. She ventured softly into the water, grasping at the stars with her hands. And then suddenly she started back, running swiftly. He was there, beside her, but only on sufferance. He was a screen for her fears. He served her. She took him, she clasped him, clenched him close, but her eyes were open, looking at the stars. It was as if the stars were lying with her and entering the unfathomable darkness of her womb, fathoming her at last. It was not him. The dawn came. They stood together on a high place, an earthwork of the Stone Age men, watching for the light. It came over the land, but the land was dark. She watched a pale rim on the sky, away against the darkened land. The darkness became bluer. A little wind was running in from the sea behind. It seemed to be running to the pale rift of the dawn. And she and he, darkly, on an outpost of the darkness, stood watching for the dawn. The light grew stronger, gushing up against the dark sapphire of the transparent night. The light grew stronger, whiter, then over it hovered a flush of rose, a flush of rose, and then yellow, pale, new-created yellow, the whole quivering and poising momentarily over the fountain on the sky's rim. The rose hovered and quivered, burned, fused to flame, to a transient red, while the yellow urged out in great waves, thrown from the ever-increasing fountain, great waves of yellow flinging into the sky, scattering its spray over the darkness, which became bluer and bluer, paler, till soon it would itself be a radiance which had been darkness. The sun was coming. There was a quivering, a powerful, terrifying swim of molten light. Then the molten source itself surged forth, revealing itself. The sun was in the sky, too powerful to look at. And the ground beneath lay so still, so peaceful, only now and again a cock crew. Otherwise, from the distant yellow hills to the pine-trees at the foot of the downs, everything was newly washed into being, in a flood of new, golden creation. It was so unutterably still and perfect with promise, the golden-lighted, distinct land that Ursula's soul rocked and wept. Suddenly he glanced at her. The tears were running over her cheeks. Her mouth was working strangely, "'What is the matter?' he asked. After a moment's struggle with her voice, "'It is so beautiful,' she said, looking at the glowing, beautiful land. It was so beautiful, so perfect, and so unsullied. He too realised what England would be in a few hours' time, a blind, sordid, strenuous activity, all for nothing, fuming with dirty smoke and running trains and groping in the bowels of the earth, all for nothing.' A ghastliness came over him. He looked at Ursula. Her face was wet with tears, 
very bright, like a transfiguration in the refulgent light. Nor was his the hand to wipe away the burning, bright tears. He stood apart, overcome by a cruel ineffectuality. Gradually a great, helpless sorrow was rising in him, but as yet he was fighting it away, he was struggling for his own life. He became very quiet and unaware of the things about him, awaiting, as it were, her judgment on him. They returned to Nottingham. The time of her examination came. She must go to London. But she would not stay with him in an hotel. She would go to a quiet little pension near the British Museum. Those quiet residential squares of London made a great impression on her mind. They were very complete. Her mind seemed imprisoned in their quietness. Who was going to liberate her? In the evening, her practical examinations being over, he went with her to dinner at one of the hotels down the river, near Richmond. It was golden and beautiful, with yellow water and white and scarlet-striped boat awnings and blue shadows under the trees. "'When shall we be married?' he asked her, quietly, simply, as if it were a mere question of comfort. She watched the changing pleasure traffic of the river. He looked at her golden, puzzled, museau. The knot gathered in his throat. "'I don't know,' she said. A hot grief gripped his throat. "'Why, don't you know?' "'Don't you want to be married?' he asked her. Her head turned slowly. Her face, puzzled like a boy's face, expressionless because she was trying to think, looked towards his face. She did not see him, because she was preoccupied. She did not quite know what she was going to say. "'I don't think I want to be married,' she said and her naive, troubled, puzzled eyes rested a moment on his, then travelled away, preoccupied. "'Do you mean never, or not just yet?' he asked. The knot in his throat grew harder. His face was drawn as if he were being strangled. "'I mean never,' she said, out of some far self which spoke for once beyond her. His drawn, strangled face watched her blankly for a few moments, then a strange sound took place in his throat. She started, came to herself, and, horrified, saw him. His head made a queer motion. The chin jerked back against the throat. The curious, crowing, hiccuping sound came again. His face twisted like insanity, and he was crying, crying blind and twisted, as if something were broken which kept him in control. "'Tony, don't!' she cried, starting up. It tore every one of her nerves to see him. He made groping movements to get out of his chair, but he was crying uncontrollably, noiselessly, with his face twisted like a mask, contorted, and the tears running down the amazing grooves in his cheeks. Blindly, his face always this horrible working mask, he groped for his hat, for his way down from the terrace. It was eight o'clock, but still brightly light. The other people were staring. In great agitation, part of which was exasperation, she stayed behind, paid the waiter with a half-sovereign, took her yellow silk coat, then followed Skrebensky. She saw him walking with brittle, blind steps along the path by the river. She could tell by the strange stiffness and brittleness of his figure that he was still crying. Hurrying after him, running, she took his arm. Tony, she cried, don't! Why are you like this? What are you doing this for? 
don't it's not necessary he heard and his manhood was cruelly coldly defaced yet it was no good he could not gain control of his face his face his breast were weeping violently as if automatically his will his knowledge had nothing to do with it he simply could not stop she walked holding his arm silent with exasperation and perplexity and pain he took the uncertain steps of a blind man because his mind was blind with weeping shall we go home shall we have a taxi she said he could pay no attention very flustered very agitated she signalled indefinitely to a taxicab that was going slowly by the driver saluted and drew up she opened the door and pushed skrebensky in then took her own place her face was uplifted the mouth closed down she looked hard and cold and ashamed she winced as the driver's dark red face was thrust round upon her a full-blooded animal face with black eyebrows and a thick short-cut moustache where to lady he said his white teeth showing again for a moment she was flustered forty rutland square she said he touched his cap and stolidly set the car in motion he seemed to have a league with her to ignore skrebensky the latter sat as if trapped within the taxicab his face still working whilst occasionally he made quick slight movements of the head to shake away his tears he never moved his hands she could not bear to look at him she sat with face uplifted and averted to the window at length when she had regained some control over herself she turned again to him he was much quieter his face was wet and twitched occasionally his hands still lay motionless but his eyes were quite still like a washed sky after rain full of wan light and quite steady almost ghost-like a pain flamed in her womb for him i didn't think i should hurt you she said laying her hand very lightly tentatively on his arm the words came without my knowing they didn't mean anything really he remained quite still hearing but washed all wan and without feeling she waited looking at him as if he were some curious not understandable creature you won't cry again will you tony some shame and bitterness against her burned him in the question she noticed how his moustache was soddened wet with tears taking her handkerchief she wiped his face the driver's heavy stolid back remained always turned to them as if conscious but indifferent skrebensky sat motionless whilst ursula wiped his face softly carefully and yet clumsily not as well as he would have wiped it himself her handkerchief was too small it was soon wet through she groped in his pocket for his own then with its more ample capacity she carefully dried his face he remained motionless all the while then she drew his cheek to hers and kissed him his face was cold her heart was hurt she saw the tears welling quickly to his eyes again as if he were a child she again wiped away his tears by now she herself was on the point of weeping her underlip was caught between her teeth so she sat still for fear of her own tears sitting close by him holding his hand warm and close and loving meanwhile the car ran on and a soft midsummer dusk began to gather for a long while they sat motionless only now and again her hand closed more closely 
lovingly, over his hand, then gradually relaxed. The dusk began to fall. One or two lights appeared. The driver drew up to light his lamps. Skrebensky moved for the first time, leaning forward to watch the driver. His face had always the same still, clarified, almost childlike look, impersonal. They saw the driver's strange, full, dark face peering into the lamps under drawn brows. Ursula shuddered. It was the face almost of an animal, yet of a quick, strong, wary animal that had them within its knowledge, almost within its power. She clung closer to Skrebensky. "'My love,' she said to him, questioningly, when the car was again running in full motion. He made no movement or sound. He let her hold his hand, he let her reach forward, in the gathering darkness, and kiss his still cheek. The crying had gone by, he would not cry any more. He was whole, and himself again. "'My love,' she repeated, trying to make him notice her, but as yet he could not. He watched the road. They were running by Kensington Gardens. For the first time his lips opened. "'Shall we get out and go into the park?' he asked. "'Yes,' she said, quietly, not sure what was coming. After a moment he took the tube from its peg. She saw the stout, strong, self-contained driver lean his head. "'Stop at Hyde Park Corner.' The dark head nodded, the car ran on just the same. Presently they pulled up. Skrebensky paid the man. Ursula stood back. She saw the driver salute as he received his tip, and then, before he set the car in motion, turn and look at her, with his quick, powerful, animal's look, his eyes very concentrated, and the whites of his eyes flickering. Then he drove away into the crowd. He had let her go. She had been afraid. Skrebensky turned with her into the park. A band was still playing and the place was thronged with people. They listened to the ebbing music, then went aside to a dark seat, where they sat closely, hand in hand. Then at length, as out of the silence, she said to him, wondering, "'What hurt you so?' She really did not know at this moment. "'When you said you wanted never to marry me,' he replied, with a childish simplicity. "'But why did that hurt you so?' she said. "'You needn't mind everything I say so particularly.' "'I don't know. I didn't want to do it,' he said, humbly, ashamed. She pressed his hand warmly. They sat close together, watching the soldiers go by with their sweethearts, the lights trailing in myriads down the great thoroughfares that beat on the edge of the park. "'I didn't know you cared so much,' she said, also humbly. "'I didn't,' he said. "'I was knocked over myself. "'But I care. "'All the world.' "'His voice was so quiet and colourless "'it made her heart go pale with fear. "'My love,' she said, drawing near to him. "'But she spoke out of fear, not out of love. "'I care all the world. "'I care for nothing else, "'neither in life nor in death,' he said, "'in the same steady, colourless voice of essential truth.' "'Then for what?' she murmured duskily. "'Then for you to be with me.' And again she was afraid. Was she to be conquered by this? She cowered close to him, very close to him. They sat perfectly still, listening to the great, heavy, beating sound of the town, the murmur of lovers going by, the footsteps of soldiers. 
She shivered against him. "'You are cold?' he said. "'A little. We will go and have some supper.' He was now always quiet and decided and remote, very beautiful. He seemed to have some strange, cold power over her. They went to a restaurant and drank Chianti. But his pale, wan look did not go away. "'Don't leave me tonight,' he said at length, looking at her, pleading. He was so strange and impersonal, she was afraid. "'But the people of my place,' she said, quivering. "'I will explain to them. They know we are engaged.' She sat pale and mute. He waited. "'Shall we go?' he said at length. "'Where?' "'To an hotel.' Her heart was hardened. Without answering she rose to acquiesce, but she was now cold and unreal. Yet she could not refuse him. It seemed like fate, a fate she did not want. They went to an Italian hotel somewhere, and had a sombre bedroom with a very large bed, clean but sombre. The ceiling was painted with a bunch of flowers in a big medallion over the bed. She thought it was pretty. He came to her, and cleaved to her very close, like steel cleaving and clinching on to her. Her passion was roused. It was fierce but cold. But it was fierce and extreme and good, their passion this night. He slept with her fast in his arms. All night long he held her fast against him. She was passive acquiescent, but her sleep was not very deep, nor very real. She woke in the morning to a sound of water dashed on a courtyard, to sunlight streaming through a lattice. She thought she was in a foreign country, and Skrebensky was there, an incubus upon her. She lay still, thinking, whilst his arm was round her, his head against her shoulders, his body against hers, just behind her. He was still asleep. She watched the sunshine coming in bars through the persiennes, and her immediate surroundings again melted away. She was in some other land, some other world, where the old restraints had dissolved and vanished, where one moved freely, not afraid of one's fellow men, nor wary, nor on the defensive, but calm, indifferent, at one's ease. Vaguely, in a sort of silver light, she wandered at large and at ease, the bonds of the world were broken. This world of England had vanished away. She heard a voice in the yard below calling, Oh, Giovan! Oh, 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 Giovan! And she knew she was in a new country, in a new life. It was very delicious to lie thus still, with one's soul wandering freely and simply in the silver light of some other, simpler, more finely natural world but always there was a foreboding waiting to command her. She became more aware of Skrebensky. She knew he was waking up. She must modify her soul, depart from her further world, for him. She knew he was awake. He lay still, with a concrete stillness, not as when he slept. Then his arm tightened almost convulsively upon her, and he said, half timidly, Did you sleep well? Very well. So did I. There was a pause. "'And do you love me?' he asked. She turned and looked at him searchingly. He seemed outside her. "'I do,' she said. But she said it out of complacency and a desire not to be harried. There was a curious breach of silence between them which frightened him. They lay rather late, then he rang for breakfast. 
She wanted to be able to go straight downstairs and away from the place when she got up. She was happy in this room, but the thought of the publicity of the hall downstairs rather troubled her. A young Italian, a Sicilian, dark and slightly pock-marked, buttoned up in a sort of grey tunic, appeared with the tray. His face had an almost African imperturbability, impassive, incomprehensible. "'One might be in Italy,' Skrebensky said to him, genially. A vacant look, almost like fear, came on the fellow's face. He did not understand. "'This is like Italy,' Skrebensky explained. The face of the Italian flashed with a non-comprehending smile. He finished setting out the tray and was gone. He did not understand. He would understand nothing. He disappeared from the door like a half-domesticated wild animal. It made Ursula shudder slightly, the quick, sharp-sighted, intent animality of the man. Skrebensky was beautiful to her this morning. His face softened and transfused with suffering and with love, his movements very still and gentle. He was beautiful to her, but she was detached from him by a chill distance. Always she seemed to be bearing up against the distance that separated them. But he was unaware. This morning he was transfused and beautiful. She admired his movements, the way he spread honey on his roll or poured out the coffee. When breakfast was over she lay still again on the pillows whilst he went through his toilet. She watched him as he sponged himself and quickly dried himself with the towel. His body was beautiful, his movements intent and quick. She admired him and she appreciated him without reserve. He seemed completed now. He aroused no fruitful fecundity in her. He seemed added up, finished. She knew him all round. Not on any side did he lead into the unknown. Poignant, almost passionate appreciation she felt for him, but none of the dreadful wonder, none of the rich fear, the connection with the unknown, or the reverence of love. He was, however, unaware this morning. His body was quiet and fulfilled, his veins complete with satisfaction. He was happy, finished. Again she went home, but this time he went with her. He wanted to stay by her. He wanted her to marry him. It was already July. In early September he must sail for India. He could not bear her to think of going alone. She must come with him. Nervously he kept beside her. Her examination was finished, her college career was over. There remained for her now to marry or to work again. She applied for no post. It was concluded she would marry. India tempted her, the strange, strange land. But with the thought of Calcutta, or Bombay, or of Simla, and of the European population, India was no more attractive to her than Nottingham. She had failed in her examination. She had gone down. She had not taken her degree. It was a blow to her. It hardened her soul. It doesn't matter, he said. What are the odds whether you are a Bachelor of Arts or not, according to the London University? All you know, you know. And if you are Mrs. Skrebensky, the B.A. is meaningless. Instead of consoling her, this made her harder, more ruthless. She was now up against her own fate. It was for her to choose between being Mrs. Skrebensky, even Baroness Skrebensky, wife of a lieutenant in the Royal Engineers, the sappers, as he called them, living with the European population in India, or being Ursula Brangwen, spinster, schoolmistress. She was qualified by her intermediate arts examination. 
she would probably even now get a post quite easily as assistant in one of the higher grade schools or even in willie green school which was she to do she hated most of all entering the bondage of teaching once more very heartily she detested it yet at the thought of marriage and living with skrebensky amid the european population in india her soul was locked and would not budge she had very little feeling about it only there was a deadlock skrebensky waited she waited everybody waited for the decision when anton talked to her and seemed insidiously to suggest himself as a husband to her she knew how utterly locked out he was on the other hand when she saw dorothy and discussed the matter she felt she would marry him promptly at once as a sharp disavowal of adherence with dorothy's views the situation was almost ridiculous but do you love him asked dorothy it isn't the question of loving him said ursula i love him well enough certainly more than i love anybody else in the world and i shall never love anybody else the same again we have had the flower of each other but i don't care about love i don't value it i don't care whether i love or whether i don't whether i have love or whether i haven't what is it to me and she shrugged her shoulders in fierce angry contempt dorothy pondered rather angry and afraid then what do you care about she asked exasperated i don't know said ursula but something impersonal love 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 what does it mean what does it amount to so much personal gratification it doesn't lead anywhere it isn't supposed to lead anywhere is it said dorothy satirically i thought it was the one thing which is an end in itself then what does it matter to me cried ursula as an end in itself i could love a hundred men one after the other why should i end with a skrebensky why should i not go on and love all the types i fancy one after another if love is an end in itself there are plenty of men who aren't anton whom i could love whom i would like to love then you don't love him said dorothy i tell you i do quite as much and perhaps more than i should love any of the others only there are plenty of things that aren't in anton that i would love in the other men what for instance it doesn't matter but a sort of strong understanding in some men and then a dignity a directness something unquestioned that there is in working men and then a jolly reckless passionateness that you see a man who could really let go dorothy could feel that ursula was already hankering after something else something that this man did not give her the question is what do you want propounded dorothy is it just other men ursula was silenced this was her own dread was she just promiscuous because if it is continued dorothy you'd better marry anton the other can only end badly so out of fear of herself ursula was to marry skrebensky he was very busy now preparing to go to india he must visit relatives and contract business he was almost sure of ursula now she seemed to have given in and he seemed to become again an important self-assured man it was the first week in august and he was one of a large party in a bungalow on the lincolnshire coast it was a tennis golf motor-car motor-boat party given by his great-aunt a lady of social pretensions ursula was invited to spend the week with the party she went rather reluctantly 
Her marriage was more or less fixed for the 28th of the month. They were to sail for India on September the 5th. One thing she knew, in her subconsciousness, and that was, she would never sail for India. She and Anton, being important guests on account of the coming marriage, had rooms in the large bungalow. It was a big place, with a great central hall, two smaller writing-rooms, and then two corridors, from which opened eight or nine bedrooms. Skrebensky was put on one corridor, Ursula on the other. They felt very lost in the crowd. Being lovers, however, they were allowed to be out alone together as much as they liked. Yet she felt very strange, in the crowd of strange people, uneasy, as if she had no privacy. She was not used to these homogeneous crowds. She was afraid. She felt different from the rest of them, with their hard, easy, shallow intimacy that seemed to cost them so little. She felt she was not pronounced enough. It was a kind of hold-your-own, unconventional atmosphere. She did not like it. In crowds, in assemblies of people, she liked formality. She felt she did not produce the right effect. She was not effective. She was not beautiful. She was nothing. Even before Skrebensky she felt unimportant, almost inferior. He could take his part very well with the rest. He and she went out into the night. There was a moon behind clouds, shedding a diffused light, gleaming now and again in bits of smoky mother-of-pearl. So they walked together on the wet, ribbed sands near the sea, hearing the run of the long, heavy waves that made a ghostly whiteness and a whisper. He was sure of himself. As she walked, the soft silk of her dress, she wore a blue shantung, full-skirted, blew away from the sea and flapped and clung to her legs. She wished it would not. Everything seemed to give her away, and she could not rouse herself to deny she was so confused. He would lead her away to a pocket in the sand-hills, secret amid the grey thorn-bushes and the grey glassy grass. He held her close against him, felt all her firm, unutterably desirable mould of body through the fine fibre of the silk that fell about her limbs. The silk, slipping fierily on the hidden, yet revealed roundness and firmness of her body, her loins seemed to run in him like fire, make his brain burn like brimstone. She liked it, the electric fire of the silk under his hands, upon her limbs. The fire flew over her, as he drew nearer and nearer to discovery. She vibrated like a jet of electric, firm fluid, in response. Yet she did not feel beautiful. All the time she felt she was not beautiful to him, only exciting. She let him take her, and he seemed mad, mad with excited passion. But she, as she lay afterwards on the cold, soft sand, looking up at the blotted, faintly luminous sky, felt that she was as cold now as she had been before. Yet he, breathing heavily, seemed almost savagely satisfied. He seemed revenged. A little wind wafted the sea-grass and passed over her face. Where was the supreme fulfilment she would never enjoy? Why was she so cold, so unroused, so indifferent? As they went home, and she saw the many hateful lights of the bungalow, of several bungalows in a group, he said softly, "'Don't lock your door.' "'I'd rather, here,' she said. "'No, don't. We belong to each other. Don't let us deny it.' She did not answer. He took her silence for consent. He shared his room with another man. 
I suppose, he said, it won't alarm the house if I go across to happier regions. So long as you don't make a great row going, and don't try the wrong door, said the other man, turning in to sleep. Skrebensky went out in his wide-striped sleeping suit. He crossed the big dining-hall, whose low firelight smelled of cigars and whisky and coffee, entered the other corridor and found Ursula's room. She was lying awake, wide-eyed and suffering. She was glad he had come, if only for consolation. It was consolation to be held in his arms, to feel his body against hers. Yet how foreign his arms and body were! Yet still, not so horribly foreign and hostile as the rest of the house felt to her. She did not know how she suffered in this house. She was healthy and exorbitantly full of interest. So she played tennis and learned golf. She rode out and swam in the deep sea, and enjoyed it very much indeed, full of zest. Yet all the time, among those others, she felt shocked and wincing, as if her violently sensitive nakedness were exposed to the hard, brutal, material impact of the rest of the people. The days went by unmarked, in a full, almost strenuous enjoyment of one's own physique. Skrebensky was one among the others, till evening came, and he took her for himself. She was allowed a great deal of freedom, and was treated with a good deal of respect, as a girl on the eve of marriage, about to depart for another continent. The trouble began at evening. Then a yearning for something unknown came over her, a passion for something she knew not what. She would walk the foreshore alone after dusk, expecting, expecting something, as if she had gone to a rendezvous. The salt, bitter passion of the sea, its indifference to the earth, its swinging, definite motion, its strength, its attack, and its salt burning, seemed to provoke her to a pitch of madness, tantalising her with vast suggestions of fulfilment. And then, for personification, would come Skrebensky. Skrebensky, whom she knew, whom she was fond of, who was attractive, but whose soul could not contain her in its waves of strength, nor his breast compel her in burning, salty passion. One evening they went out after dinner, across the low golf links to the dunes and the sea. The sky had small, faint stars. All was still and faintly dark. They walked together in silence, then ploughed, labouring through the heavy loose sand of the gap between the dunes. They went in silence, under the even, faint darkness, in the darker shadow of the sand-hills. Suddenly, cresting the heavy, sandy pass, Ursula lifted her head, and shrank back, momentarily frightened. There was a great whiteness confronting her. The moon was incandescent as a round furnace door, out of which came the high blast of moonlight, over the seaward half of the world, a dazzling, terrifying glare of white light. They shrank back for a moment into shadow, uttering a cry. He felt his chest laid bare, where the secret was heavily hidden. He felt himself fusing down to nothingness, like a bead that rapidly disappears in an incandescent flame. "'How wonderful!' cried Ursula, in low, calling tones. "'How wonderful!' and she went forward, plunging into it. He followed behind. She too seemed to melt into the glare towards the moon. The sands were as ground silver. The sea moved in solid brightness, coming towards them, 
and she went to meet the advance of the flashing, buoyant water. She gave her breast to the moon, her belly to the flashing, heavy water. He stood behind, encompassed, a shadow ever dissolving. She stood on the edge of the water, at the edge of the solid, flashing body of the sea, and the wave rushed over her feet. "'I want to go,' she cried, in a strong, dominant voice. "'I want to go.' He saw the moonlight on her face, so she was like metal. He heard her ringing, metallic voice, like the voice of a harpy to him. She prowled, ranging on the edge of the water like a possessed creature, and he followed her. He saw the throth of the wave followed by the hard, bright water swirl over her feet and her ankles. She swung out her arms to balance. He expected every moment to see her walk into the sea, dressed as she was, and be carried swimming out. But she turned, she walked to him. "'I want to go!' she cried again, in the high, hard voice, like the scream of gulls. "'Where?' he asked. "'I don't know!' and she seized hold of his arm, held him fast, as if captive, and walked him a little way by the edge of the dazzling, dazing water. Then there, in the great flare of light, she clinched hold of him, hard, as if suddenly she had the strength of destruction. She fastened her arms round him, and tightened him in her grip, whilst her mouth sought his in a hard, rending, ever-increasing kiss, till his body was powerless in her grip, his heart melted in fear from the fierce, beaked harpy's kiss. The water washed again over their feet, but she took no notice. She seemed unaware, she seemed to be pressing in her beaked mouth till she had the heart of him. Then at last she drew away and looked at him, looked at him. He knew what she wanted. He took her by the hand and led her across the foreshore, back to the sand-hills. She went silently, he felt as if the ordeal of proof was upon him, for life or death. He led her to a dark hollow. No, here, she said, going out to the slope, full under the moonshine. She lay motionless, with wide open eyes, looking at the moon. He came direct to her, without preliminaries. She held him pinned down at the chest, awful. The fight, the struggle for consummation, was terrible. It lasted till it was agony to his soul till he succumbed, till he gave way as if dead, lay with his face buried, partly in her hair, partly in the sand, motionless, as if he would be motionless now for ever, hidden away in the dark, buried, only buried, he only wanted to be buried in the goodly darkness, only that, and no more. He seemed to swoon, it was a long time before he came to himself, he was aware of an unusual motion of her breast, he looked up. Her face lay like an image in the moonlight, the eyes wide open, rigid. But out of the eyes, slowly, there rolled a tear, that glittered in the moonlight as it ran down her cheek. He felt as if the knife were being pushed into his already dead body. With head strained back, he watched, drawn tense for some minutes, watched the unaltering, rigid face like metal in the moonlight, the fixed, unseeing eye, in which slowly the water gathered, shook with glittering moonlight, then surcharged, brimmed over, and ran trickling, a tear with its burden of moonlight, into the darkness, to fall in the sand. 
He drew gradually away as if afraid, drew away. She did not move. He glanced at her. She lay the same. Could he break away? He turned, saw the open foreshore, clear in front of him, and he plunged away, on and on, ever farther from the horrible figure that lay, stretched in the moonlight on the sands, with the tears gathering and travelling on the motionless, eternal face. He felt, if ever he must see her again, his bones must be broken, his body crushed, obliterated for ever, and as yet he had the love of his own living body. He wandered on a long, long way, till his brain drew dark and he was unconscious with weariness. Then he curled in the deepest darkness he could find, under the sea-grass, and lay there, without consciousness. She broke from her tense cramp of agony, gradually, though each movement was a goad of heavy pain. Gradually she lifted her dead body from the sands, and rose at last. There was now no moon for her, no sea. All had passed away. She trailed her dead body to the house, to her room, where she lay down inert. Morning brought her a new access of superficial life, but all within her was cold, dead, inert. Skrebensky appeared at breakfast. He was white and obliterated. They did not look at each other, nor speak to each other. Apart from the ordinary, trivial talk of civil people, they were separate. They did not speak of what was between them during the remaining two days of their stay. They were like two dead people who dare not recognise, dare not see each other. Then she packed her bags and put on her things. There were several guests leaving together for the same train. He would have no opportunity to speak to her. He tapped at her bedroom door at the last minute. She stood with her umbrella in her hand. He closed the door. He did not know what to say. "'Have you done with me?' he asked her at length, lifting his head. "'It isn't me,' she said. "'You have done with me. We have done with each other.' He looked at her, at the closed face which he thought so cruel, and he knew he could never touch her again. His will was broken, he was seared, but he clung to the life of his body. "'Well, what have I done?' he asked, in a rather querulous voice. "'I don't know,' she said in the same dull, feelingless voice. It is finished. It had been a failure. He was silent. The words still burned his bowels. Is it my fault? he said, looking up at length, challenging the last stroke. You couldn't, she began, but she broke down. He turned away, afraid to hear more. She began to gather her bag, her handkerchief, her umbrella. She must be gone now. He was waiting for her to be gone. At length the carriage came and she drove away with the rest. When she was out of sight a great relief came over him. A pleasant banality. In an instant everything was obliterated. He was childishly amiable and companionable all the day long. He was astonished that life could be so nice. It was better than it had been before. What a simple thing it was to be rid of her. How friendly and simple everything felt to him. What false thing had she been forcing on him? But at night he dared not be alone. His roommate had gone, and the hours of darkness were an agony to him. He watched the window in suffering and terror. When would this horrible darkness be lifted off him? Setting all his nerves he endured it. He went to sleep with the dawn. He never thought of her. 
Only his terror of the hours of night grew on him, obsessed him like a mania. He slept fitfully, with constant wakings of anguish. The fear wore away the core of him. His plan was to sit up very late, drink in company until one or half-past one in the morning. Then he would get three hours of sleep, of oblivion. It was light by five o'clock, but he was shocked almost to madness if he opened his eyes on the darkness. In the daytime he was all right, always occupied with the thing of the moment, adhering to the trivial present, which seemed to him ample and satisfying. No matter how little and futile his occupations were, he gave himself to them entirely, and felt normal and fulfilled. He was always active, cheerful, gay, charming, trivial. Only he dreaded the darkness and silence of his own bedroom, when the darkness should challenge him upon his own soul. That he could not bear, as he could not bear to think about Ursula. He had no soul, no background. He never thought of Ursula, not once. He gave her no sign. She was the darkness, the challenge, the horror. He turned to immediate things. He wanted to marry quickly, to screen himself from the darkness, the challenge of his own soul. He would marry his colonel's daughter. Quickly, without hesitation, pursued by his obsession for activity, he wrote to this girl, telling her his engagement was broken. It had been a temporary infatuation, which he, less than anyone else, could understand now it was over. And could he see his very dear friend soon? He would not be happy till he had an answer. He received a rather surprised reply from the girl, but she would be glad to see him. She was living with her aunt. He went down to her at once, and proposed to her the first evening. He was accepted. The marriage took place quietly within fourteen days' time. Ursula was not notified of the event. In another week, Skrebensky sailed with his new wife to India. End of chapter 15, part 3 Read by Tony Foster